Hello and welcome to the C21 podcast. My name's Nico Franks. We hope you're safe and well wherever you may be. Coming up in this episode, we hear from a trio of executives working in the international drama space, including Helen Pequi, co-founder of Belgian prodco Johnny Deponi, who talks about what it's like to be developing a drama set after a pandemic when a pandemic hits, and Simon Crawford Collins, managing director of Slim Film and Television and formerly MD of Kudos in the UK, who makes his return to the podcast. First, I spoke to Elie Vervloot, an expert in international co-productions at Belgian public broadcaster VRT. She's overseeing a new initiative at the European Broadcasting Union set up to ensure European podcasters don't lose out on high-profile projects to international streamers like Netflix. The drama initiative gives executives at Europe's PSBs a first look at projects in development and the opportunity to co-produce and or pre-buy them. I began by asking Ellie how the initiative differs to similar co-production agreements such as the Alliance, which was set up by podcasters in France, Italy and Germany and is backing forthcoming shows such as Slim Film and Televisions around the world in 80 days. It's not really a part of the drama initiative, but it shows us the way in a way. Just like the Nordic 12, for example, the Nordics country, Nordic countries collaborating. These are ways of territorial or regional collaborations. We also take a look at and we want to see whether we can expand these models to other uh, regions. So it's, um, it's not really part of the drama initiative. But uh, of course, these are examples and these are broadcasters showing us the way. We want to invite every EBU member to, to join us and to express their needs on drama and what do we need to be able to keep on making good drama within Europe. But next to that, we have created a kind of a co-production network. And this is another track where we want to give the chance to broadcasters to get a first look on new drama proposals and to say, hey, I'm interested. I would like to co-produce or pre-buy it or maybe co-develop a series. We have to learn to be quick and quicker than we used to be. We, we don't have the time anymore to think about it for ages and then an OTT platform comes and it's gone. So I'm really stressing to everybody, we need to be quick and we need to decide quick and we need to show our interest as quick as possible. So we have created a kind of an, an, an exclusive EBU window of 30 days. And uh, so broadcasters have 30 days a chance to say, hey, I'm interested. And how strict is it in terms of which partners can and cannot get involved? Because obviously we've seen lots of big budget dramas emerging over the past few years that are co-productions between, say, a public service broadcaster like the BBC and Netflix. It depends on, on, on the way the co-production is formatted and, and on which rights are still available, I think. Uh, it would be great if BBC would come to us first before going to Netflix and see whether they can find one or more broadcasters interested to co-produce. Because if you're able to finance your uh, series with a couple of co-producers, you don't have to give away, give away all the rights, the worldwide rights. There are still, you can still cooperate with Netflix or sell content to Netflix afterwards. So it really depends on the construction and every co-production is different. But if Netflix would say, well, we take all the rights, worldwide rights. And, you know, for linear broadcasters, it's less and less interesting to only retain your linear rights. We also need 
your leave rights. And how do you ensure that the creative conversations don't become too complicated with lots of potential different partners? Because I suppose that is one of the benefits of doing a deal with a streamer is that it limits the amount of creative interference, potentially. As EBU, of course, we are only the facilitator and we try to create this network and it's up to the broadcasters to see how the model can work in the co-production. Frankly, um, um, it's true that the more partners you have, the more complicated it gets. On the other hand, you can also see it as an opportunity to get good feedback from other professionals uh, who read scripts in another way or with maybe some other uh, different eyes. And how much of this is also ensuring that public service broadcasters retain those younger viewers who are gravitating so much towards streaming services like Netflix? Yeah, that's one of the big issues for public broadcasters to address uh, and relate to a younger audience. And we need drama for that. I'm not saying that by doing so, we will be able to to keep them close to us. But if, if we don't do nothing, then for sure it's, it will be even more harder to keep them. And one of the projects that's part of the initiative has just by coincidence, a lot of similarities to the situation we find ourselves in, a Dutch-Belgian co-pro called Arcadia. It's a concept that was presented to us uh, at the end of 2018, so there was no coronavirus at all inside. And the first sentence of the pitch was, after a deadly virus, a new society is created. So it takes place in the near future. It's uh, based a little bit on existing systems, like in China, you have a social credit system. So there's a new society created after a big pandemic and the people who are living in this world they decide that um, you have to stay healthy and you have to be productive and you have to be screened all the time in order not to have the same pandemic uh, disaster again so people get a chip implanted and they are screened full time and uh, if you drink too much or if you eat unhealthy your score drops and at a certain point if your score goes below a minimum you're kicked out of that society and you're dropped in a kind of an outer world where it's survival of the fittest. It's a series about solidarity. It's about freedom versus security. It's not about the virus, but it's about the society created after a virus. Very quick in, in the process, uh, we said this is, I think, a very relevant story for public service media. So we had a meeting with uh, Dutch colleagues and they pitched it there and they decided very quickly to come aboard as uh, co-producers. And uh, I pitched it last year uh, within the EBU society. It was not in the formal drama initiative as we have it now, but it was the pre-drama initiative, let's say. And uh, ARD agreed uh, to step aboard as co-producers uh, also. So it's a co-production with three public service media. And it will be tax-sheltered and we will submit it for a media fund Flanders. And um, it will be fully funded in a stage where we only have a Bible and a pilot script for the moment. So that's great. There are a lot of things uh, that we thought were futuristic are now taking place. So in that way, we have to rethink it a little bit and move it back further in the future uh, because uh, what we thought was future is now, has become now. So we have to create something new, but not fully new. I mean, the story will be the same. We tell the story through the eyes of a family who lives in that society. We don't have to change that, but we have to. We don't want to see too many, for example, masks in series or the elbow, uh, shaking hands. You know, we want to keep 
far away from that. We don't want to make it a COVID-19 series, but we have to be smart about how will the society look like in two years from now on, knowing that we had COVID-19 or maybe still have if they don't find a vaccine. So it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's uh, really influencing the writer's team. Ellie Vervloot of VRT and the EBU. I also caught up with Helen Pequi, co-founder of Belgium's Johnny DePony, maker of Flemish hit Tabula Rasa, and the prodco behind Arcadia, the post-pandemic drama that's been made as part of the EBU's new drama initiative. We talk about the aims of the drama initiative, as well as why podcasters need edgy content to wrestle back younger viewers from the streamers. First, though, I asked Helen about how post-pandemic drama Arcadia which is set in a world where citizens have given up their right to privacy in order to be safe, originated well before we'd ever even heard the words COVID-19. The concept was built in 2018. And I remember when Philip presented it to me, the whole idea was that we live in a society where people are scored on efficiency and the fact that they have high moral standards and that they work good and that they have a work ethic, live healthy, etc. A little bit based on the Chinese system. So a society after a pandemic. And I remember in those days in 2018 that it was my, my idea or my main concern was that the whole pandemic idea was a big huge and a big over the top. And obviously something that was near Phi, as you described it, has become very, very near Phi with the pandemic. So what happens when you're developing a drama about a pandemic and a pandemic happens? The focus never was on the actual virus. The focus always was on how do you live as a human being when you are controlled, when your score is very important. But obviously, yes, it became a nearer Phi and we could tap into the actual, actual happenings worldwide to describe better or to point out some details that we thought were interesting. Yeah, how much are you going to bring in from what's actually happened? And how much are you going to try and actually kind of distance it from reality? We do not want to bring in the actual reality in the sense that it is, it is still a neophyte. It is a world that doesn't exist luckily now. People in our world are chipped, they are scored, they, uh, they are, have to focus on their score determines whether they can have, it's like the Chinese credit system, whether they can have healthcare, whether they can go for specific jobs, how, what is the, 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 the lowest margin, so when are you going to be thrown out? Because it actually starts when the father of the family is thrown out. So he goes beyond the borders and um, yeah, the whole search, are we going to see him again or is he lost forever? Um, but of course, as I say, for instance, the social distancing, if you have kind of a, you feel in that world that the virus has caused a lot of uh, lives and a lot of uh, mayhem. So you see like social distance uh, ways, how chairs are placed, or that people do not cuddle and kiss and hug. And that, of course, but that was already a little bit in the premise, but now you can make it a little bit more um, realistic. Or people will relate to it a lot more without having to explain. We think that at the heart of the series is our strive and battle for European values. It is a story about human values and what we treasure far more than a series on the virus. It has never been a series on the virus. It was, a, it was the world 
of a score system after a pandemic. How do you feel about the initiative in terms of what it's trying to do and making sure that public service broadcasters um, get first runs of local drama series? I think in our ecosystem, that is really, really, really shifting, um, especially now on top of that. For producers, their main goal is to get their story out and to make the story that they want to tell. So obviously, it has always been my strategy to find the right partners. And I think the Drama Initiative is just another alliance or another possible way to finance uh, projects. And the only aim I think good producers should have is finding the correct alliances or partners to get the story out. Because the worst combination is when you financially combine two partners who are content-wise not on the same page. That is a nightmare. So I think the public broadcasters have kind of a common goal as an asphalt player can have a very, you know, if you go to HBO, it's something completely different than if you go to a broad studio or if you go to indeed a public broadcaster. So my financing scheme is always connected to the content that we're making. It wouldn't make sense otherwise. But I suppose even within those public service broadcasters, there's differences in taste. So do you find, yeah, that your sensibilities sometimes jar with other European public service broadcasters? Absolutely. I think the major idea of other public broadcasters, they have an elderly audience and they stick to a conservative kind of picking material. This being said, I also think that they know that. They're losing big time with younger audience. Now, from this knowledge to stretching and experiencing with only youth or young adult shows or is a stretch too far. So as the VRT did with, for instance, Sabola Raza, it is really kind of stretching what you think your audience can handle. And if you consider on top of that, also selling a series, strangely enough, it's more the edgy, interesting, creative series that do well abroad. The, the whole ecosystem is under such a lot of pressure that within five years' time, if you stick to your model, your model has disappeared. And even within three years' time. So they know they have to do something. And I think the future is that youth, they do understand other language shows and with the crisis, with the economic crisis, I'm a little bit afraid that the tendency will be again to play safety because, of course, the commercial stations will have a very hard time. Um, they will have a very hard time the coming years. Helen Pequie of Johnny DePony. Next, here's Simon Crawford Collins, MD of Slim Film and Television, to talk about the future of international co-production and his reflections on the Black Lives Matter movement's impact on the TV industry so far. I began by asking Simon for an update on Around the World in 80 Days, which stars David Tennant as Phileas Fogg and has been pushed back from Christmas 2020 to a Christmas 2021 air date due to the pandemic. And CBBC drama Mystic, which had to call time on filming in April towards the end of its shoot in New Zealand. I asked him if a firm date to restart shooting on the latter is a long way off. No, we are we're going to be back in September filming to complete the end of series one. 
the desire to get back out there is too great. And as you say, it's one of the rare countries which is effectively COVID-free. Uh, so other than the complexities of quarantining uh, our cast and any other people we need to get out there, once we're then there, we're, it's, we're, it's, it's a great place to be making shows. So, and one of the things that we also have to protect is that you know there's a lot happening there, a lot of big shows happening in New Zealand. So if we didn't go back out there, we'd be losing our crew and and the studio space we've got and everything. So there's a big sort of need to get back out there and tell everyone we're still in business. And you're also filming, or were filming, around the world in 80 days uh, for the BBC, uh, a big international production. So how is, what's the status of that? That's more complicated because there's multiple countries involved and we have crew and cast from multiple countries as well. So the coordination factor is, is pretty huge. And our two principal countries of shooting are South Africa and Romania, and they are both still battling the COVID situation and are not as far through as, I mean, certainly not as far through as New Zealand is, but not, nor as far through as the Central European um, countries. So uh, we, in an idea, this is where there becomes a lot of speculating and, and guessing and everything because it makes a lot of sense for us to go straight back into South Africa where we have sets all built and standing there, which we've got 24-hour security on, and all our costumes are there. All the you know everything was like mothballed from the moment. So you know it may be that Romania opens up sooner than South Africa, but the cost of sh shipping and shifting everything from South Africa to Romania in order then to take it back, and then there's the danger of do we lose our sets because other people want that space in South Africa and you know, etc. So this endless juggling of different options. The reason why I'm in the office is that we're actually going through all the scripts and looking at all the different options of things we may need to change and things we'll be willing to change or even happy to change because obviously there's pretty significant financial impact of, of the virus and we are aiming to get as much support as we can from the broadcasters, from governments if we can, etc. But Ultimately, we, we know there'll be a shortfall. We just don't know exactly where that shortfall is going to land. So we're trying to plan for all sorts of eventualities of what cuts we have to do and at what point the cuts will become so severe that we go, okay, the, we are not happy with the quality of the show. We'll try and keep everything we can, but some things will inevitably end up not making it into the show that would have been there without, without COVID. That's it's a given. How does that work with Cass? Because obviously, you know, as someone of David Tennant's calibre, he's going to be in demand as soon as filming is possible. So, yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think David has, has been um, clocked as, as Britain's uh, busiest actor. Um, so hanging on to David is, is challenging. The sense of commitment to finishing what we started is huge from all the cast and all the crew. At the moment, every HOD from everywhere in the world is, is still committed to the, to the project and can't wait to come back. I, I'm not sure it would be exactly the same if we hadn't started at all, which would have been better for us on paper financially. But, you know, as I say, the emotional commitment may not have been there. And ultimately, what we found with every, everybody around COVID is it's just keeping the communication going. Uh, it's very hard for us to do a completely you know, hard and fast deal with actors or crew or anything like that because we don't know 
quite when we're going to be back. So we don't know what we're committing ourselves to. But as long as I think everyone feels that they're being very openly talked to, listened to, communicated with, and it's all done collaboratively, then the response has been really strong. And so David has kept us absolutely abreast of what's happening with his other projects, how they're moving around. Um, I'm in discussions with other producers who are due to be working with him when necessary. David's agent has been extraordinarily um, helpful. So, yeah, we know very clearly uh, what are the dates that will work for David without too much pain. Uh, And then we... And, and at the moment, we're still feeling hopeful that that will be what we're able to achieve. And then we know that, you know, if COVID carries on for you know, longer than we anticipate the restrictions, then we'll start getting into turbulent waters. But the wheel is there somehow or other to get it done and get it made. Where do you see the future of international co-productions going after this in terms of all the logistics that they require are obviously going to be made more difficult, but then the distribution of risk is also going to be necessary as well. Mm. So how do you see people balancing those two things out? I think that obviously, you know, with what we know now, which is that we think we're going to come through, this things will be complicated, but we think they're going to come through. I think that the the shape of production will continue uh, as it was before. I think people will always go for the best possible projects they can, whether those are international or domestic. I think there will be over the next few years a, a sort of, a, you know, a, a strong hankering for things that are totally domestic and, and you know, you know, very, you know, relatively easy to produce and quick to produce because there's going to be a bit of a shortfall. But I don't think the appetite for the more complex international shows is going to die off the back of this because I think that's what... You know, what we've seen is that viewers are desperate for great content. You know, Netflix is famous for its really big budgets. And if you were going to say that anybody had sort of come out in the media industry as the winner of the um, of the lockdown battles, it feels like Netflix is the one that's absolutely dominated. And obviously, along with the pandemic, we've also seen a huge amount of social upheaval and progress in terms of the Black Lives Matter movement uh, around the world and a lot written in the UK industry about action that needs to be taken uh, both among broadcasters but also producers. It's such a complex and emotive subject that you know and I'm very aware I'm I'm completely white very middle class and sort of the archetype of what the, the, the industry has been on 80 days. I mean, I've always known we had to lift that from the very white middle-class, you know, 1872 set uh, novel the, that it was. And so always uh, we were going to have one of our core three being a, a black character. And, you know, and indeed, you know, there, was, there isn't really a female character in the book either as well. So fix in the book is a, is a, white British policeman uh, and we've now made that into the the journalist who uh, generates the story initially and, and inspires Fogg to go off on his journey but yeah we need we all need to do a lot more both on screen and behind the camera I, I am not averse to positive discrimination if that's what it needs because I'm very aware that that's not giving legs up to people who aren't as good that's helping to redress the balance where people have not been given fair breaks over let's face it generations 
but it's complicated. And when you go and film in in countries like South Africa, which I love as a country, but it's it's interesting. Most of the HODs tend to be white, uh, but all the drivers and lots of the cons- most of the construction crew and everything like that tend to be black. So you're sort of you want to as much as possible. You know, we can't all change everything, but you know, I'd love to see more changes as well, not just here in the UK, but internationally too, to get that 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 shift happening. It's a huge challenge because as we've seen from recent events, even in countries that should be leading the way in being non-discriminatory and fair, we have to recognise that we're actually not not there. So globally, yeah, we're, we're, we're way off. Slim Film and Television's Simon Crawford Collins. That's all for this episode. There'll be more from the podcast tomorrow. But in the meantime, stay safe and stay up to date with all the latest developments by following C21 online, on mobile and social media. Thanks for listening. 